the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Lordship of Christ and the Limits of Government, and then troubling statistic about teens and life enjoyment. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, happy Wednesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we haven't called it hump day in a while, but it's hump day, but it doesn't feel like it in the summer. Every day feels like it's kind of weekendy, kind of work day. Can I go home early? Right. Summer's I weird know. that way. Summer is weird that way. Like, I feel like I want to have like every evening free to sit on my back porch and read books and like then have dinner outside with my family. And like, it feels like you're on vacation, but then you're like, oh, wait, I still have to get up and go to work the next day. You stay up right. later. Kids stay up later. I do love that about summer. Like, the routine is just sort of like whatever. I really enjoy that. But um, it, it is a strange mix of like wanting it to be full vacation all the time. And that's actually not. It's just weird. Do you think way, like right? when we were in school growing up, like I think there's something in our circadian rhythms that is telling us we need to be on vacation and not have any responsibilities for the next few months because that was ingrained in us as school children. But we still have to be adults. Like it gets warm. I, I don't know what it's like in your house, but in my house, like kids will often still be asleep. Like I get up and I'm going to work and I'm like, wait, where is everybody? I feel like I should be staying home. It's like in the wintertime on a holiday. You're like, I should be home. Like I should be yeah, home now, but it's like right, the whole time. Right. So yes, it's just yes. weird and circadian rhythms. Okay. That's We're going to use that phrase as often. Not okay. not to do with the cicadas, uh, no. but the circadian rhythm. Okay. Aubrey, government, Christianity. Uh, is constantly in the news. I found this article actually just recently written by John Piper hmm. uh, over at Desiring God because uh, somebody who is much more, he just wrote it on June 15th, oh, somebody wow. who is much more outspoken Christian nationalist, to be honest with you, on Twitter was ripping John Piper. Like this is oh, just wow. pietist, escapism, all of this stuff. So it began a debate about what is the Christian response to country, to government, mm. to what okay. hopes do we put in the government? And like I said, mm. this person was like just ripping, ripping Piper. So I thought I'd read just the beginning. First of all, Piper writes kind of weirdly, uh, but let me read the beginning of it. And I just want to have a conversation about, because uh, this is everywhere right now, at least on my Twitter feed, like, you know, the government and Christianity. What's the goal here? And yeah, so okay. here's what Piper writes. The thesis of this essay, have you ever started an article that with the thesis so of this funny. essay? I saw this and no, I've only ever done this for grad school papers where I've like in this paper, my but thesis I feel like we were always is, or taught I will... not to write that way, right? Like, well, like, definitely not in sort of this kind of casual online writing. So I'm surprised right. he went that direction, but let's see what he has to say. 
The thesis of this essay is that Jesus Christ, the absolutely supreme creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe, intends to accomplish his saving purposes in the world without reliance on the powers of civil government to teach, defend, or spread the Christian religion as such. Followers of Christ should not use the sword of civil government to enact, enforce, or spread any idea or behavior as explicitly Christian as part of the Christian religion as such. And then he goes to define some terms. But he basically says what, quite frankly, we've said. I I like to just read Piper stuff and say, wow, you agree with Piper, Aubrey. Uh, (laughs) I I do like the thought here where he basically says, Christians should not put their hopes in the government to Mm. enact Christian things. That's it, yeah. But that Jesus is is our Lord and King. He's Mm. going to do what he does. But it's apart from the government. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that we should expect out of the government. There aren't things that we should expect the government not to stop. Uh, It doesn't mean. But but ultimately, he's saying our hope is not in the government. I should tell you, the person that I read on Twitter was like, this is escapism and pietism. And if you believe this, then you're you're an escapist and a pietist as well. Big oh, words because I was like, is that a bad thing? I'm not sure. I don't right. know if I'm supposed to be <laughs> right. insulted by is that, that, that an or not. Yeah. <laughs> but Piper's general take here is let's just really boil it down. Uh, Jesus is Lord. We put our hope in Christ. The church is not the government. And ultimately, the goal is not to get as many Christians in the government mm. to turn the government and the and the yeah, the the uh, society Christian, right? But instead, we're working in, in through the church and through other means, and uh, so it's really a rejection of let's work in and through the government to rise up Christian stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. Like an example that he gives is um, some join me. This is Piper talking in rejecting the notion of any given Christian denomination being established as a state church but still advocate for the state's enforcement of the Christian religion, such as including the Apostles' Creed in the U.S. Constitution. He says, to turn Christian creeds into civil statutes, transforms them into legal codes enforceable by the sword. I argue that this is contrary to the teaching of New Testament. And then he goes on to say, it's disobedience to the Lordship Mm. of Jesus Christ. So I think that's that's a pretty strong statement. And I would actually agree with him that if we look... If we look to the government and expect the government to use civil authority to bring about Christian influence or the kingdom of God, we're just mixing up like yeah. who actually whose kingdom we belong to, right? And I I don't think it's I, I'm not sure if I totally I I don't know if I totally understand what the the insult pietist I mean, I understand what it is to be pious. I don't understand necessarily what the critique is there, but the escapism, I don't think it's escapism. I think it's a shift in perspective because mm. we see these Christian nationalists or these people who are like, the the schools need to have the Ten Commandments in every classroom. And you're like, well, what's the end goal of that? Ultimately, does that bring about the kingdom of God? And are you conflating local authority with Christian authority? I, you know, I think that's the point he's trying to make is that they're different. They're even opposed yeah. in a lot of ways. So pietism, uh, simply put, focuses on the individual. So we're we're most concerned with our individual faith in Jesus, right? Oh, rather than collective. Okay, yeah. And this person is wanting to probably say that, you know, there's something bigger. uh, Piper at the end says his conclusion is God's new administration. He says, 
the commitment to renounce reliance on state advocacy for the Christian faith is not in the service of so-called secular neutrality. It is in obedience to God's word and in celebration of the Christ-exalting way he intends to rule the world without the weapons of the world, but for the glory of of his name. Every Piper article is going to end with the glory of his name. Yes. <laughs> but how does this actually play itself out, Aubrey? If we buy what Piper's saying and not what mm-hmm. this other guy that I was talking about says, mm-hmm. what does this do? How does this play out? Because we all love America. Fourth of July is coming. Go to the parade. We want yeah. everybody to vote. But how does this change perspective? Yeah, I, I, I think this is tricky because I would I would say I I actually do care about the collective quite a bit. And I'm not just someone focused on the like individual relationship with Jesus, although I certainly think that matters deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think we have a communal faith and we need to we need to do something about um society and systems. Like that I do believe that like evil works itself out in systems. And so I, I want to see God move in system. So this is a hard thing where you're like, I want to fight for justice and peace in my nation. And so I want to stand up for what's right. I want to be active politically. I want to take stands that I need to. And yet I, I feel like ultimately it comes down to a shift in perspective yet. I am yeah. not going to let that. If the government doesn't do what I want, if the person I think should be in office isn't an office. I'm not going to let that sway my perspective on like God is still on the throne. I'm not going to let that mm. shake me. I'm not going to let that keep me up at night. I'm not going to let that make me full of anxiety because I trust that like God's will will be done and Jesus's kingdom is the kingdom I belong to, not the kingdom of this earth. And so I think it's a I think it's a posture and a perspective. Like you can fight for what you think is right and you can fight to, yeah. to an end to injustice and things that feel immoral to you. And I think you should, it would be escapism not to, and yet it doesn't have to shake the ground you walk on. Maybe that's the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's well put. And go- I think it's good words from Piper here. Uh, yeah. It does tell you something about a wing of the church and Christianity that this was pushed back against so hard because there are people who believe our goal ultimately is to turn the government Christian uh, as right. much as possible so as right. to advance it. But th- that comes with dangers. And ultimately, I think that takes us off track of what we're really called to mm. do. Uh, and uh, so I-, I tend to agree with Piper's words. Whether that makes me an escapist or not, I, I would argue it does <laughs> not. You're such a pietist, Brian. <laughs> a pietist escapist. All right, Aubrey, let's let's get depressing here. Let's talk some sobering <laughs> statistics. We like to laugh a lot on this show, but every now and then you're just like, oh, that's hard. Uh, Here's the headline from uh, the New York Post. Number of teenagers who, quote, don't enjoy life has doubled with social media. So they they ask these teenagers, they're just about depressive symptoms. Okay. Uh, So they ask these couple things. I can't do anything right. My life is not useful. I do Hmm. not enjoy life. So I'm looking back to here when you and I were teenagers. So 1995, Aubrey, basically on this chart, this this, uh, this graph. So you and I, I graduated high school in 95. I think you said you graduated in 96, if I remember right. Uh, So I do not enjoy life. Teenagers, this is 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. I do not enjoy life was at like... 24%. Yeah. Yeah. My life is not useful. Was at like 27%. Uh huh. I can't do anything right. Was at about 33, 32%. Mm -hmm. Okay. Still seems kind of high. 
All right. Yeah. I don't enjoy life in 1995 was 23%. It is now at 48.9% for teenagers. Wow. wow. My life is not useful, which at one point back then was at like 33% is now at 44.2%. Yeah. And I can't do anything right, which was at like 32, 33% is now at 49.5%. To all that, to the point that the uh, New York Post begins this article this way, this is kind of haunting. It's the new Great Depression. Wow. Since the rise of social media, depression and feelings of hopelessness have skyrocketed amongst teens. Aubrey, that is, we talk a lot about this, but to see the numbers uh, with some uh, very innocuous statements, like I do not enjoy life. Like I don't, like I had problems when I was a teenager. There were things I don't ever remember a day, like I don't enjoy life or I feel useless or this and that. Like there were hurdles, there were sure, things, but sure. to read these, like half almost of these teenagers saying this is, this is super sobering. Yeah, it is. It is very sobering. And some of it I understand is like teenage angst or whatever, but to see it going up so high. And I mean, as, yeah, as a teenager, I mean, I felt like even when I was at my most angsty, I still was enjoying life. You know what I mean? Like having right. fun with my friends and I like life is not useful. That is like, you know, there are things I didn't like about school, but I liked being at school with my friends the I can't do anything right. In my That's heavy stuff for teenagers to even be like caring, right? Like the fact yeah, that they're even yeah. like considering that and that the number is increasing so much. And I, you know, I, I think again, every time we hear these stories and it seems like more and more research makes the connection to social media, the comparison thing. Yep. It, and or I think it's just the way the smartphones seem to be changing our brains, the way that they function. You know, I'm not exactly sure, but there, there, there is some change that's happening in teens, both I think the social yep. pressure and the way we're actually processing information. Aubrey, you make a great point about social media. And that's something that this article says, because this is they have a line graph in this article, right, about the rise and it's not a consistent line graph it's not like in 1995 it was this in 2023 it's this right, and it's a consistent. Right. actually from 19 like 90 uh all the way until 2015 it's mm -hmm. or like 2012 it's pretty right. like consistent. a little bit of rise a little here, up little and down of, but right. right aubrey 2015 all of these Boom. spike they just yeah. start heading up like it's heading yeah. up a mountain and they go straight up. And the only explanation, like why at that point, that is the introduction of mm. social media. That's mm. the introduction of our phones when kids, you know, adults too, but for this uh, discussion, teenagers are so tied to their phones. They're so tied to comparison in social media. We got TikTok and Snapchat and Twitter and Instagram and whatever else. And we can raise this flag about social media, but this is like, data in front of us there's no other yeah. explanation as to why it would be like normal 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 spike at the exact time when social media amongst our teenagers kind of takes off i think the hard part like okay so like let's jump out of this for just a second the hard part is social media is not going anywhere we know this mm -hmm. um and yet i do think and i've said this before comparing it to like 
smoking in public, right? Like we don't, we've decided that it is not safe for the collective to smoke except for in private specified locations. We don't smoke in restaurants anymore. We don't smoke at the mall. Like, because we all said that's a health epidemic for people. And I feel like this, there has to start being, I, I understand it begins with parents. Like parents, you've got to put guardrails around kids' social media. Like there's just the the research is just literally right in front of our faces. But at some mm-hmm. point, it's either social media is not going to go away. And so it needs to be for kids that are over 18 or there has to be That's time right. limits. Like there has to be some guardrails on the fact that this is like no longer safe. Like we know it. It's the hard part is it feels like the the ball's moving and it's not going anywhere. So I, that's what I, that's, I think what I'm wrestling with now. Okay. Like in a world where social media isn't going away, how do we help our, how do we help the next generation coming up, you know, in this stuff and coming up with these like depressive rates? What then do we do? Yeah. I mean, that I, I've always been one that's like, Hey, let's keep the government out of this. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is about, and I agree with you. Parents are number one in this. They yeah. got, got to take the lead. Yep. But there does come a point where the data is the data where you go, Hey, there came a point in our culture. Where we said, you have to wear seatbelts. There came yeah. a point in our culture where we said, smoking is dangerous right. or asbestos in buildings is bad or yes. whatever else it might be. And I didn't think we'd get there, but there does feel like a point where you go, at what point are we going to believe the data in front of us that says, and I don't know, I have no idea how you put that genie back in the bottle of social yeah. media. I don't know if that's I even possible, right. but I do think that the biggest call here is to parents going, hey, just look at the data and and see the line graph and yeah. go, yeah. that's terrifying. Ha- like, understand what this is saying. Nearly half of our teenagers said that their life is meaningless, they don't have joy in life, mm. uh, they don't feel useful. That mm. is staggering. Yeah, it and, is. And uh, it is a call to parents to go, what are we going to do about it? But Aubrey, I, do, I, I think this is the first time I've really said, I think we need to, as a society, go, at what point do we say this is too dangerous? Like, we need some regulation here to do something. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I and again, the more data that comes out showing the rates of, and you know, even just like the things that are adjacent to this, right? Like the eating disorder rise, the suicide yeah. rise, the anxiety rise, like all of the things that are under the same umbrella of our kids' mental health, their physical safety. There has, I think, there has to be some regulations at some point. And I know you can't. Nothing will happen perfectly, but I still feel like some regulation is better than none at this point. When the all of the research, like there's no research out there saying this is good for our kids. None. Yep. At some point, you you know, we obviously believe it starts with parents and the church and this kind of stuff, but it doesn't mean that there can't be an element in it. Man, I found these sobering. Mm -hmm. I I think even we're we're so numb to statistics. We get statistics. It's the line graphs on here that you're like, oh my gosh, like that is like it can't continue to rise at this or else as a society, we're just in trouble. Brian, this is a heavy topic. I feel like you and I as pastors deal with heavy things quite a bit. And this came up in my calendar. It's the two-year anniversary of a stillborn baby at our church. And Mm. actually, this is a side note, but part of the reason why I wrote my new kids book that's coming out in October, Big Feelings Days, is because that family had stillborn baby. They had three other children, little kids, and there were no 
resources for the kids mm. grieving. There were resources for parents. There were resources for grandparents. Nothing for the precious little kiddos. And so my publisher, I, I went to my publisher like, hey, do you guys know anything? I want to send this family a book. They're saying they can't find anything. And they were like, no, but we think you need to write it. So <laughs> so long story short, here we are. It came up on my calendar, the two-year anniversary of this you know, precious baby girl who was uh, stillbirth. And, you know, it, it just kind of got me thinking, I know we've got a lot of listeners that are going through really hard things. Maybe they've lost a child or maybe they're dealing with health scares themselves or, you know, walking through a difficult time of grief or of confusion or doubt or even just, I don't know, having lost somebody that, you know, something like a baby is just so, 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 so painful. And I thought maybe we could just kind of spend a few minutes to to speak pastorally to people who are hurting right now, specifically because of loss or grief or maybe hitting the anniversary of something that's, you know, Father's Day, obviously, I know it's hard for people who've lost their dads or sure. have a difficult relationship with their dads. So um, how do you even begin, Brian? I mean, I know you, you and Carrie had miscarriages. You didn't have a stillborn yeah. child, but you know well, what I it can't is. Imagine too. That. Yeah. So... I, I think the first thing that Christians struggle to do, uh, generally speaking, in these types of situations is sugarcoating things. Mm, like, yeah. oh, you know, God needed another God angel. God needed an angel. Yeah. God knew that you could handle this. or And we start speaking for God, which yeah. is a really dangerous thing to do. And so totally. I, I think step one is not sugarcoating things, but mm. just saying this is awful. Like to the, to the parents who lost a stillborn baby, mm -hmm. like this is as soul crushing as I could imagine. Like yeah. this is unbelievably terrible and allowing it just to be that, right. allowing it to be unbelievably terrible, allowing it to be super difficult and not feel like you have to say, um, you know, oh, you'll get, you'll feel better once you have another child mm. or those kinds of things. I, and so I would suggest first to everybody out there, when you've got people around you who are dealing with tragedy, like acknowledge that it's tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good. Like acknowledge that it's bad and then go from there. Does that make sense? Don't mm -hmm. sugarcoat it. Yeah. I think that's a great, I think that's a really, really good starting point. Like, like, it's okay to just like let it be sad and let it be hard. And I think, yeah, I, I, this, I do think, you know, the tendency to sugarcoat is to want to make it okay. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also okay to just say, you know what? Like, this is awful and I'm so sorry and it shouldn't have happened. And then just stop there, right? Cause I, at the end of the day, I think we want to fix things for people and maybe that's a good tendency, but like the Lord's the only one who can bring that kind of healing and the Lord's the only one who can, you know, bring comfort. And we can, I think, walk beside people, remember anniversaries, send text messages, send cards in the mail, send flowers. Like there are yeah. ways we can offer comfort and I think remind people, hey, I see you. I remember this. This is a really big deal. I haven't forgotten but ultimately, we're not going to fix it. And so I do think the no sugar coating is really important. And I also think there's a tendency to just 
avoid like we have a friend walking through some pretty serious grief right now and he's like it's so hard because even people who have been my close friends since childhood they don't even bring up my loss and he's like I don't want to sit and talk about it all the time or in depth but at least say to me hey I'm so sorry or hey how you doing like at least acknowledge that this major like life change has happened for me and um then I know you care about me so I think we we sugarcoat and then we avoid rather than just being like, hey, how you doing? How you doing today? This must be yeah. hard. You know, just kind of checking in with people. I think that's another word. Okay. So then, you know, Brian, thinking about the people who are actually carrying the grief, lost a child, lost a spouse, dealing with a diagnosis, you know, a job loss, like something like that. What's a, what's a pastoral word for them? Like where is yep. God in all of this? Yeah. So again, we give the freedom to feel mad, to feel confused, mm-hmm. to feel distraught because- we don't want to put on people and you have to have a smiley face or have the joy yeah, of the Lord. Or right, whatever. right. But then we do need to point people to the victory we have in Christ mm. that he does do miracles now. So we have hope now, mm. but even if for whatever reason in God's providence, he chooses not to heal you of, or your loved one of whatever, yeah. or to take this away. The old Paul with a plank in his eye, uh, we know the words of uh, that in first Corinthians are true that, that Jesus has, has victory over sin. Like where yeah. death is your victory, where death is your sting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the power of sin is death and the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like we can proclaim that victory and point ahead to the book of revelation that says there's coming a day when there'll be no more tears, no more, no more sorrows, no more death, no more whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore we have hope. We have a firm foundation. We have a God who says, I'm near to the brokenhearted. I will Mm. be with you always. So we have to point people to, yes, feel the feelings. They're real and they're legitimate, but know the presence of God and ultimately the victory of God through Jesus Christ. And so you can hold on. Like those provide real hope Mm -hmm. as opposed to Oh, just pray more and it'll all go away. Right. They still might die of cancer. Yeah. Uh, or whatever else it might be. But we can say there is coming a day when stillborn births and cancer and uh, heartache, broken relationships just aren't going to be part of our right. reality right. anymore. Right. And so therefore we can point to that and say, uh, because of that, I'm going to be with you. Mm. Uh, but more importantly, God is with you. And, mm. and there's coming a day where, where ultimately we realize that victory on a grand scale. It's interesting. I, you know, I've referenced this book. We had Curtis Chang on the, uh, his book is called the anxiety opportunity. And he talks about how with anxiety specifically, everything you're afraid to lose, you will lose. Like he's like, that's just a reality of life because you will die or your loved ones will die. Like none of us beat death. But then he, what he ends up talking about is how the message of Jesus is that everything you lose, you will, he says you will it will be returned to you. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't totally understand how relationships in heaven work. I don't understand things like that. But I do think one of the hopes that we have when we think about life with Jesus is that the losses we've experienced will be reunited with stillborn children, right? Or yeah. that we'll get yeah. to see our loved ones again, or that we'll get to experience new life with them. Like, And so that's what he's kind of talking about, like in Christ, everything we've lost somehow returns back to us. I know that famous Tolkien quote is everything, everything sad will become untrue, you know? Mm. And I think that's, that's one of the hopes that we have because of Jesus's victory on the cross and because of his return. We've 
carried some really heavy stories to you today. And so we want to end on a good note. We love going to a place called The Week where they aggregate good news stories from the previous week. I'll start with the first one, Brian, because it's related to the new Spider-Man movie. For Teen Animator, working on Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse was like a dream. I haven't heard this story, but this is kind of fun. Preston Mutanga, 14 years old, had no idea that when he created the Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse trailer using Lego characters, it would lead to a job offer. For years, Preston had been making computer-generated Lego videos on his dad's old computer. He shared his Across the Spider-Verse trailer online, and when Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, the directors of the Lego movie, and writer-producers for Across the Spider-Verse saw it, they were blown away by what he created and asked Preston if he would be interested in animating a few scenes or animating a scene for the movie featuring Lego blocks and figures. His dad built him a new computer, and Preston worked on the scene after finishing his homework. Preston (laughs) told the New York Times that being able to work on this movie with people who actually made this masterpiece was honestly like a dream. So, uh, Brian, I've seen this movie, and there is a little Lego segment. I had no idea that a 14-year-old did that. That's amazing. That is so cool. I can't wait to tell my kids that. That's so cool. All right, next cool one. 3D printer used to build schools in Madagascar. What? Give thinking huts a few days and they'll turn an empty lot into a school campus. Founded by 23-year-old Maggie Grout, Thinking Huts is a nonprofit devoted to making education accessible in Madagascar. According to the UN, three out of four children living there don't go to school because of overcrowding or treacherous commutes. Well, now using a 3D printer in 18 hours, Thinking Huts can build a structure a community can use as a classroom. In 2022, Thinking Huts completed its first campus in a city of 200,000 people in south-central Madagascar. It has huts, solar panels, potable water, toilets, and Wi-Fi. Come on. Thinking Huts will unveil its second campus, which will serve three villages on the West Coast. Once schools are built, they are run by local partners. We're really just aiming to be a stepping stone for the community to be (laughs) successful on their own. I'm going to... Just say right now, I don't understand how 3D printers work. No, no, no. I was literally just thinking that. How does a 3D printer build a structure? Like we need a we need a Google video of this later. I don't or know. someone yes. smarter than us come online and tell us what we're missing here. But that is amazing. Okay, here's another fun story. Free book deliveries will keep kids reading over the summer. A special delivery is on the way for many Tennessee elementary school students. Through the K-3 through Home Library Program developed by the Governor's Early Literacy Foundation in collaboration with Scholastic, rising first, second, and third graders will receive in the mail six packages this summer containing grade-level books and evidence-based literary resources. The packages will also be sent to teachers and school librarians and media specialists. Altogether, the program will deliver 1.2 million books to more than 200,000 people free of charge. The program began in 2020 to keep kids reading over the summer and limit learning loss with books chosen by the Educator Advisory Council consisting of 28 Tennessee educators. A survey found that 97% of parents said their kids were thrilled to receive the books, and now 33% have more than 100 books at home because of the program. I want that. I want them to send me six like adult uh, theme, not adult theme. That sounded bad. (laughs) Uh, Age appropriate. (laughs) <laughs> age appropriate you heard books. it here first Aubrey's looking for a public a, a distribution service to send her six adult books do you know where you could get six books 
the, the library. library i know but i want someone to curate and send them to me you know what this makes me think of when you were a kid brian did you ever get those national geographic cards in the mail like it was like a big like yellow container and you open it up and they would send you like different animal cards like once a month or something sounds like that familiar. i think it came with a national geographic subscription i just Kid remember button. things like that were so fun to get in the yep, mail yep all right. The next one is this endangered vaquita porpoise population huh. steady in the Gulf of California. Mexico's vaquita porpoises are holding steady in the Gulf of California for two weeks in May. Researchers sailed around part of the Gulf, which is the only place vaquitas, the most endangered porpoise in the world, live. The team estimates it saw 10 to 13 of the porpoises, about the same number spotted in 2021. Vaquitas are small and elusive, and many of the sightings were through binoculars. The researchers saw at least one or two calves in the water, which was a hopeful sign. Vaquitas cannot be captured, held, or bred in captivity. Because of illegal fishing, the vaquita population has dropped from 600 in 1997. Uh, Alex Oliveira, the Mexico representative for the Center for Biological Diversity, told the AP the new research is, quote, encouraging news, and it shows the vaquitas are survivors. Hmm. But we still need urgent conservation efforts to save these tiny porpoises from extinction seems like the common good needs to send us to Mexico, for the to vaquitas. the Gulf, to check out the vaquitas for ourselves. I'm All sure right. Here's another fun story for the week. Scientists say new data contradicts belief that morality is declining. This should encourage people. For decades, people worldwide have said they believe morality is declining, but new research shows this could be a cognitive illusion. Psychologists Adam Mastroioni and Daniel Gilbert examined surveys conducted in 60 countries between 1949 and 2019 about moral values, found that in response to 84% of the questions, most participants said that they felt morality had declined. In their own 2020 surveys, U.S. participants of all demographics said they thought people were less kind, less honest, less nice, and less good now compared to earlier times. The researchers then studied similar historical surveys. If, as people overclaim, morality has been declining steadily and precipitously for decades, then people's reports of current morality should also have declined over the years, the study mm. authors wrote. They didn't, though. And Mastrioni said this means the perception of moral decline is either false or it's at least very difficult to find any evidence that it has happened. Very interesting. interesting. Is this just something we've all sort of assumed and repeat and say and believe, but this has been true of every generation hmm. throughout history? Anyway, uh, those those who believe in the universality of sin would probably say so. Hmm. Yeah, that's probably true. Very, very, very fascinating. All right, Brian, do you have any fun plans tonight? A summer evening at home with the family? You're watching baseball games? Oh, that does sound nice. No, Tuesday night, once a year at our church, we do a men's barbecue in the parking lot. And tonight is the night. So oh, how exciting. There's no like program. We just hang out, toss them. That bags, feels like a very manly thing to do. Men's. That's why we do it. We've literally, since we started the church, done it in the church parking lot. Like we don't go to a park. We just set up chairs and tables in the parking That's lot. That's so fun. And is there like an alternative for the women? Do they do like a women's? They did something last week at somebody's house. That yeah. Great. So, That's yeah. so fun. Yeah. I love that. It's a great time to just Now, do you have to organize that as senior pastor or do you just show up and like shoot the breeze with people and eat meat and- <laughs> Or are you I'm in charge of, of I'm like part of just because I always have, but I'm part of the team that does it. But there's other people who help and yeah, yeah. I'm not shouldering it. We'll put it that way. Okay. All right. What that's are you good. doing tonight? 
Uh, you know, my parents are in town one more evening, so we'll probably have a lovely dinner with them before they fly out very early in the morning. And um, I'm sure it'll be enjoyable. I'm yeah, sure it will. I'm looking forward to it. Well, Brian and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. We can't wait to uh, see you then, listen to you then, have you listen to us then. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.